Belonging in the USA is a podcast focused on consciousness-raising conversations between host Arielle Nobile and her neighbors near and far. Our mantra is, if you exist, you belong. In therapy, you talk about the holding space. Sometimes like that's what it is. It's the holding space for healing to happen. But in some ways, it's also like you want to hold space for the mystery too. You want to have room in the middle of all the things that you know, but you also want to have that space of like connection and intuition and the space to sit in the not knowing. Belonging in the USA is a Legacy Connections Films production brought to you in part by Grata a wealth dynamics practice dedicated to leveraging wealth as a tool for full-hearted engagement in creating a better world. Grata promotes human connection, empowerment, and creativity by understanding wealth in all its forms. Because there's a whole lot more to wealth than money. Also brought to you in part by Copeland Consulting, a nationwide provider of in-home coaching, treatment, and recovery for anything from eating disorders to addiction and everything in between. Get life-changing help in real life and in real time. Discover what it's like to be truly alive. Visit copelandconsulting.com for more information. Link in show notes. Sarah B. and I are lifelong friends and confidants and have spent many a long night chatting it up on the phone until my mother would come downstairs to demand I hang up. Sarah is now a trauma therapist with additional expertise in somatic experiencing. She works at a special clinic at Northwestern University in Chicago, as well as in a private practice. Being old friends, there was likely a lot of shorthand, and it certainly felt a bit awkward to be having a public conversation when we are so used to the intimacy of our friendship. So I can kind of hear and sense the awkwardness in our voices at times. You might not pick up on it, but I certainly did, so I just wanted to say something about that. We also shared the experience of having been in the Young People's Company of Piven Theater Workshop in Evanston as high schoolers, And we refer to this a bit and some of the magical experiences of belonging and transcendence we experienced under the guidance of founders Joyce and Byrne Piven during those formative years of our lives. My whole series, Belonging in the USA, Stories from Our Neighbors, like I probably wouldn't have gotten over the hump of sort of leaping to make it if it wasn't for Sarah and her believing eyes and ears. But I want to know from you in this really weird time in the world, like the weirdest time of our entire lives, what is that phrase that I use all the time, belonging in the USA, what does that mean to you right now? One of the things that I've been thinking about, about this idea of belonging in the USA, you know, I've been listening to a lot of political podcasts over the last administration and people kept talking about like this experiment of democracy and this idea that it's actually very fragile. And it's this, it's this thing that like, it's this thing that almost like essentially could have ended or transformed into something very different. And I think that like the ongoing experiment is this idea that like we all participate in that experiment. And this idea of like, what that means to participate and what it means to be included in the conversation and that idea of like how do you actually create space for like the multiplicity that is the U.S. I guess that's maybe what I think about these days right now 
is belonging, is being allowed, invited to participate, um, to have your voice valued, um, have your dignity as a person, regardless of background or gender or identity or any of those things, wealth, all of that. But to me, that feels like the interesting question about belonging right now or what belonging means. It's like an ideal that we keep striving towards. So I guess it's also a responsibility to, to one another. And it's interesting because, right, so I remember really distinctly, I think it was the first screening we had of the story of Michael D. McCarty at Columbia College. And I remember you coming up to me afterwards and after watching Michael's story, you said belonging is an inside job. Mm. That it actually has nothing to do with anyone outside of you. Because belonging in the USA maybe is all that sort of more yeah. bigger picture stuff. And then the belonging itself is an is maybe the inside job part. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a more personal question, but as a kid yourself, like where or when did you feel you belonged, if, if anywhere? Like this is just like one little moment of um, when I started going to Sunday school with you, we weren't friends at first. And I didn't feel like I belonged at Sunday school, but I remember that first, like I was, and I think it's because that being Jewish, like, that was the one area that I sort of didn't fit in that, you know, I was, there weren't a lot of Jewish kids in my school. And I just remember looking around when we got to Sunday school and it being like every single person here is Jewish. And that meant something to me at that moment because I hadn't experienced it. And it wasn't like I was facing lots of anti-Semitism or had issues with like not fitting in, but it was just that one thing that was always sort of like hanging there a little bit for me. So that was, that's like one moment. I wouldn't say that that's like a profound soul belonging moment, but um, I guess my personality is to feel kind of fraught in a lot of situations. So some of it is also looking back and being able to recognize, oh, that was belonging. It's hard sometimes to feel it in the moment, but I think that probably like our experiences at Piven were a moment like that for me. I think it was the first moment that I felt like I, I learned how to be in my full body, which I had never figured out. I mean, I'm still working on it, but that was like a pretty big one. And to be a part, that idea of like being a part of ensemble, like being both an individual and also something, being part of something bigger than yourself in a way that's really like tangible. Parts of a whole. Oh yeah, Parts I mean, I bet that phrase is always in my head and heart actually. So that was like, a, everyone who's listening, that was a call, basically a theater game call. We basically all had to do sounds and movements and we were parts of this machine, this machine that wasn't a real machine. It was a machine we were inventing every time newly. And you had to use full body sound and motion. And then that's, the call was parts of a whole. Mm-hmm. And the connection you could feel across the space, people you could not see, but you could hear, you could sense. It was just this like really profound unity, which was a huge privilege to have that even language at that age. And I think to also be a young person and um, be creating with an ensemble, like being n- not working from a script, but working in ways that, you know, I continue to work as an adult. Um, that was a really big deal for me. Because there's that a lot of sense. trust in that. I think yeah. that's part of it too. So where do you feel belonging these days, especially in this strange COVID isolation time. This is one of those things that I probably will feel different every time I say it. So I've been super isolated in a lot of ways, not totally isolated. I feel like I have had really rich connections to my friends and family over the phone, 
primarily. And even through text messaging, like I think that my connections to other people have just felt a little more, I don't know, more sacred, more important. Um, you know, I, I think that one of my experiences during this time was like all of your, everything that's important to you kind of like rises to the surface in this really dramatic way. And so for me, it was, it was my relationships and, you know, a lot of my relationships are really old. I mean, it's something I'm really, and I have some new friendships as well. So I loved that. And I also, it was, you know, my life had been so chaotic and busy before COVID. And so really like the solitude felt really good. Like the stillness and the solitude, be it like sitting in my chair, looking out the window or going for walks in my neighborhood and, and feeling a sense of connection to place, um, going for walks with friends. Like, I guess I felt a sense of belonging in those simple things. Well, and I think you're right. Like, I think you're meant, you're bringing something up too. I think that there is maybe belonging and connection also go hand in hand. Like mm-hmm. when we feel connected, we feel embodied, we feel presence and that's that is like a belonging yeah experience um yes there's something about just being that is part of that belonging um that we yeah that we do find in simple moments that we don't always notice though so maybe i'm just trying to make people notice these moments people pay attention at the beginning of um of the pandemic i was listening to this um somatic experiencing teacher he was giving this lecture there was you know all these different like people were just offering their thoughts on what was going on and I remember him his first name's Raja uh, Raja Selvam and he talked about that because this crisis is such like a large global crisis it's like a large enough screen for us all to um, project all of our personal existential fears and concerns against it. So like my experience at the beginning of COVID was like, oh my God, this is the, like, this is the content of my personal worst fears. Like everything I could have feared is suddenly happening. It's like my personal nightmare. And hearing him say that was really helpful to be like, oh, it's just that the screen is really big. It's not that my personal nightmare has come to pass. And then as a therapist during this time, I could start to hear, oh, like this is what this person's personal existential concerns are. But then kind of going back to this sense of like the belonging piece, I think it's also provided a screen um, for us to recognize whatever the opposite (laughs) of that is, like our, the things that bring us into connection or the things that connect us to our heart or our values or whatever it is. I'm not quite sure what the right word is. And it's interesting though, because every thing in this world right now feels so extreme right like so polarized so big black and white us and them this or that this party that party um so it's interesting to think of the opportunity here to both see the worst and the best case scenarios right Mm -hmm. but i love that idea of this huge screen that we're all but i think it's like that idea of god being this thing in the middle and we're all looking from different windows right it's kind of a similar metaphor Mm -hmm. i mean i love you know we we talked about a little bit my grandmother's hands Mm-hmm. which I keep bringing up on this podcast too, because I've been reading it very slowly and I love it. But, you know, he talks about clean pain versus dirty mm-hmm. pain. Here's his definitions. Clean pain is the pain that mends and can build your capacity for growth. Dirty pain is the pain of avoidance, blame, and denial. When people respond from their most wounded parts, become cruel or violent or physically or emotionally run away, they experience dirty pain. 
they also create more of it for themselves and others. I mean, I can say from my own experience, I think that, you know, I've certainly been very busy during COVID for which, you know, I certainly have a lot of gratitude for that. Um, But I think like most people, there was like a spinning or like a, a movement in our lives that just stopped. And so I, I think that some of the ways in which I was probably continuing to like reenact my own dirty pain stuff, I didn't have any of those things I could do. I just had to like sit with it. <laughs> and not that I don't still have some, obviously I do, but it, it was such a startling experience, I think, to like have everything just change so quickly that it's, I don't think you cannot do some pretty deep questioning and look at yourself in different ways and look at your life in different ways. Yeah, it's definitely a reckoning. I mean, the rec- the word reckoning just keeps coming up for me this year. Yeah. So what is freedom? I think about like, I have a couple, I don't know the answer, but the things that came to my mind were when I think about health. So like when I think about health in terms of when I'm working with, you know, therapy clients, like I think about health as flexibility um you know I mean like literally when we're our bodies are healthy we're we're more flexible but also you know there's going to be pain in one's life but to be able to like move back and forth to not get like sucked into these sort of vortexes of despair to have the freedom I guess to, to to be able to experience and to experience other things as well so that's like the first thing that came to my mind and then I also had the thought of like like the word came like unencumbered but then the thought following that was the unbearable likeness of being. <laughs> so I don't know. It's probably more complex. Well, but I think of that book and that word, that phrase all the time when I think about freedom, the unbearable likeness of being. Mm-hmm. I do, because it is like this. There's something about liberty and burden that are con- intertwined. And maybe it's not burden. Maybe it's responsibility. Or, or it's this, maybe it's the fact that I know ultimately that my deepest freedom is found again inside that there's not there's nothing you know that it's the internal freedom that is the most um valuable ultimately like because you can't control the outside you can't control what's happening in the world or what's happening around you more than you can in your individual acts right you can make choices but you actually can't stop covid let's say you can't single-handedly do that but you can you know choose to to um, feel burdened by that, or you can choose to find the pockets of liberation within that don't hold you back. I don't know. It's like that feeling of buoyancy while you're sinking. (laughs) Mm. It brings up the complexity of like, that there's a certain sort of negotiation of like how much you want to hold, like how much burden you want to carry because you're in connection with other people. And there just is an inevitable heaviness to that. And then how much you want that individuality. It's like, there's such a trade-off. So figuring out like what it means to be able to be in community and partnership and any of those things while still having a sense of like, like flexibility and freedom and space, I think. Um, And growth, I guess, right? Like growth is a part of freedom. Well, and then, I mean, I think you and I have had so many conversations over the past few years, especially, I think about racism and just the concept of that, that phrase, you know, none of us are free until we're all free. Mm -hmm. And where that, like, that's where I think this, 
complexity comes in in this definition too, because it can't just be about my individual freedom, right? It can't just be about my individual rights. I mean, that's why we have been perpetuating unwittingly, right? Pretending we didn't notice white supremacy mm-hmm. because we've been just saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fine. <laughs> and it's like, but there's so much more to it than right. you being fine. Right. And so it's, and I think that's part of this thing you started to talk about earlier, the, the myth of America, like the U.S. and this sort of way that we're creating it. It has been built on the lie that what matters most is your, your independence, your freedom, the individual, all that rugged individualism that has just gotten us tied into these terrible, terrible knots of oppression. Well, I was at a, I was at a training or, I don't know, a conversation, a program yesterday about um, decolonizing mental health. And it was presented um, by some folks that had various identities, but including Native American, like the part um, connection to different Native tribes in the, in the Americas. And so they were sort of comparing like a Western, like these sort of Western um, paradigms to indigenous paradigms. And so that even in that idea of freedom, like I think about sort of this like individual versus collective tension that exists. And I'd be so curious about what freedom means from other um, belief systems and uh, and other paradigms. Because I feel like there's something that's happening that's probably been happening for a very long time, but really dramatically on the surface this year of saying like, there's something about this particular Western paradigm that needs to be dismantled and needs to be rethought and refigured out. Reimagined. Reimagined. Yeah. Thank you. And so that was something that kind of came to my mind as well is that I think as someone that is like very much a Western person, I feel like a lot of my thoughts feel unformed in this moment because there's there was your programming. It's your, it's your brain. It's the way we're all brainwashed depending on our life experience and culture and where we come from and how we are programmed. And you know what you're talking about with mental health too. We have so many fascinating conversations about that, but I was just with somebody who just spent a couple weeks in Peru with shamans Mm -hmm. um, doing some, you know, plant medicine and, so many of the people I think that in this paradigm, I like that word in this culture and this construct of reality that we consider mentally ill or crazy would be shamans in other mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. And that, and that, and that even shamans are like trendy in the West. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's this thing where it's like, well, it's not an option. We need shamans. We need people who see differently. We need to have our, like our vision of reality imploded, exploded, completely expanded. It's the only thing that might save us. Planet. <laughs> I, mean, I really do feel that. So, I mean, talking about this idea of freedom, like where now do you feel that sense of freedom? I think that the, like the first answer that came to my mind is the luxury of time and space. I feel like I have a lot more of that right now. And that has been really profound and I find like the more I get of it the more I want and and how we use time is like I feel like um if you want to rethink how you use your time you have to rethink your whole life you know yeah that's where I've been feeling the most freedom so were you I don't even know if I've ever asked you this like were you a big Mr. Rogers watcher I think so like he's a big part of my memory of childhood one of the things about Mr. Rogers that just 
continues to impact me is this idea of neighbors and being, and I don't even want to say a good neighbor because it's not even good or bad. It's like being a neighbor. So how do you relate to this idea of neighbors? Well, my first thought is how I feel like I'm in sort of a perfect situation with my building where it's like, I really like everyone in my building. It's totally the kind of building where I feel like people look out for each other. If you needed something, you could send a text to the you know, building group text, blah, blah, blah. But we're not like hanging out together. You know, like this idea of people just stopping by feels like a really um, not appealing to me. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> like, I like the idea of feeling like comfortable and safe with my neighbors. And I also, yeah, I like the idea of like really clear boundaries, which I don't think I learned that from Mr. Rush. <laughs> <laughs> And like, what if you think about the broader sense of neighbors, like neighbors as nations and neighbors as, you know, the world, like, because, you know, when I, you know, you know this about me in this whole right. series and titles, it's not about nationalism, definitely. And it's not about even thinking of these borders, but it's about expanding that concept of what a neighbor is too. And, and I mean, in your work, you're constantly the holder of stories Mm -hmm. of people that aren't your actual neighbors but like you can see them in that context maybe neighbor is the wrong word I'm just using that word as a container for something else okay this is not a formed thought but like the words that come to mind are are safe safety and welcoming so I feel that in my my building I feel that relatively in my neighborhood And when I think about, so I work in a clinic that I think a lot of the folks that come to our clinic feel a great sense of belonging and thinking about also that idea of like dignity, you know, Um, having a place where one's dignity is affirmed, Um, also where one's needs are met. You know, if you come to like a doctor's office, like you have certain needs you want met and you want them met um, in a way that supports your dignity. Or I think about public performance, which was something that was important to me, especially before I got into um, social work, shared spaces where, yeah, people feel that their dignity is affirmed, where they feel safe, where they feel welcomed. Yeah. And as I'm hearing you say all that, it it reminds me of heartbreak as far as, because I was just listening to this other part. I did listen to this one podcast today I'm starting to listen to, which is called code switch it's an npr podcast Mm -hmm. you know just talking about literal neighborhoods and how they've been formed in this country and redlining and all these things it's like the entire plan and design of our country has been created to make some people feel that sense of welcoming and dignity in certain spaces and not in others and all of that um and so again i think we need to redefine reimagine what neighbors are and who we consider neighbors and yeah I should say that um, I'm in a consultation group and we're reading a book called The Politics of Trauma by Stacey Haynes. And she talks, and so I'm actually picking up the book right now, about safety, belonging, and dignity. So safety, belonging, and dignity. Those are powerful. So what are some of the practices that you either intend to do (laughs) or do do (laughs) on a regular basis that keep you centered, motivated? inspired as an artist and like able to do the work you do? So I think a big thing this year has been um, taking walks, which I had kind of put on hold for the winter. I took a 
walk yesterday though for the first time in a while like just a long wandering walk that was that's another kind of COVID rediscovery is I think before this last year every once in a while I'd go on some like epic long walk or you know hop on the train and just you know like kind of have a meandering and it always felt because I was I thought I was so busy or that was like so much a part of how I thought of my life that it was that felt like just really like luxurious like you know decadent. Yeah, decadent. But I think that this summer, the walks became much more like a part of like staying sane. And I think also trying to be connected to my body in different ways. And the need to be outside felt more intense. Like, so walking was a really wonderful thing. And then I listened to music, um, which I don't listen to as much at home, I listen to a podcast or something. I think my connections with other people are a really big part of all this. Um, those are like the two big things. Yeah, but walking and music. I mean, I don't know. Music is such a major part of my life too, that if I didn't, if I go a couple of days without listening to any music, I'm like, what's going on with me? Like something's up hmm. because some, because there's some, it's like, and it's not just background for me, music. It It is influencing the whole, it's like setting the stage. It's like tone to my life. Yeah. And I don't, it's funny. It's like, I have a lot of musicians in my life, but I can go a long time without listening to music. And so I guess that was something about reconnecting to that this summer that was actually really important. As a kid, like reading was such a big part of my life and like reading fiction. And as I got older, I grew farther and farther and farther from that. And I think, you know, grad school was kind of like a nail in the coffin. Like I just like kind of killed my love of reading. <laughs> and so... But but it's one of those things that, like, if I can sink into a, a book, that's it's like such an important barometer of my mental health. And I think I've been finding my way back into fiction, which has felt so valuable. So that's something I hope to continue to be able to make space for. Again, like, I haven't had the bandwidth for it for a long time. But um, recently, I've come back into taking classes, you know, like creative classes that have very little to do with my like professional life. And that is really important to me, like having places where like you can be a novice, you can learn new things. The stakes are really low, but you get to learn new skills has felt really important to me. Yeah, lifelong learning is so important. And that's, you know, yeah. And it's a beautiful gift of this time to be able to even just ask yourself, what what are you interested in? What do you want to learn? What do you want to do? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's funny. So this is totally shifting gears for a second and it might circle back, but I mean, as I go on and on about the ways in which we were probably raised in a very wealthier, um, privileged white world and all of that that goes with it. At the same time, I recognize the individual stories that make that up. And I recognize, you know, I don't want to be us and theming that either. So like, what are some solutions you feel for the us and theming or the polarization that's going on? Well, I think that, you know, there's times when, you know, I think that if you know people from like different, like, I don't know, from the different groups that people are talking about, I think that that, and and hopefully listening to their perspectives um, with humility, I think that that's important. Um, I mean, I think that's something that I'm continuing to work on. Like I think about, like I, I had this thought at one point about, like I was thinking about 
my my first car that I had, um, like thinking about all the people that rode in that car, you know, like you think about like, what's the point of life? What's the purpose of life? Or what's a goal? And I think about like getting to travel, like I'm not a very well-traveled person at all, but I feel like within the sort of small geography of places that I've spent time, which is mostly Chicago or Chicago area, um, to get to sort of like visit as much of that as possible. Um, and, and I think that can be through like, you know, physically visiting, but it can also be through like your connections to people in these different parts of wherever it is that you live. And that can be also, through, so it can be through conversation and relationship. It can be through reading or taking in stories, but I, that's like one way in which I feel really rich is that I've, I feel like I have gotten a chance to walk in some, a variety of, of experiences, I guess. Of worlds, it seems yeah. like. You might, maybe you've already mentioned these things, but I just want to ask you this. What really lifts your spirits right now? What gives you hope? What inspires you? Things that give me hope. Um, like the things that came to my mind were like the COVID vaccine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, um, like right now, like being outside in nature, like the things that feel, which I don't do enough, of, but the things that feel sort of like, um, like they don't change, you know, um, or they don't change in, in quick ways. Um, I think this, like the, again, the feeling of connection has just felt really tender this last year. And I've been really grateful for that. I feel like in some ways I felt a lot closer to people this year in a certain way. And then I think about like, I think about my work, like I had this work that I did for a long time as an artist that I still do a little bit, but mostly it's like as a, as a therapist and getting to like witness the ways in which people are in transformation and growth. And it feels like really, 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 really humbling and mysterious. So there's sort of this like balance between like, here's all the things that we know, you know, and here's all the research. And then, and I've done like a lot of training and I have a lot more to do and all this stuff. And then there's just like the mystery, like, it feels like kind of holy. You're like, I don't know what's going on, but something's happening. And it's like, it comes back to Piven a little bit of like, when you're in the space with somebody and there's like that moment of transformation, like you lock eyes. I remember, okay, here's a Joyce store whose birthday I think is today. Oh, happy Piven. birthday, Joyce. Not the day that this will air, but the oh. day that we're talking. <laughs> and I was teaching a junior high summer class, which was like a, a really, like those, that's a hard class to teach because for lots of reasons, junior high in, in the summer, awkward. <laughs> and Joyce came in and we were playing this game called Fingers, which is like this improv scene game that Ariel knows. And I remember like Joyce kept stopping. So basically the game is, I won't go into all the details, but essentially it's like, you're doing this, like you're, there's all this like movement that it did to the, and then there's like, when you fall into unison from wherever your bodies are, you burst into scene. And so what was happening was like, people were finding that moment of unison and you could actually see them like going into their heads and then like, you know, really quickly, like thinking about what they're going to do, which is what we do when we're terrified. Right. We try to make order out of it. And Joy's kept stopping them. And I remember she was saying, you know, what's the hardest part? You know, basically the beginning and the ending, because that's where you have to really, truly find it together. The middle is pretty easy, but the beginning and the end is really hard. 
And then we had a teacher's class shortly after that. And I still remember this moment of we were doing like a polymorph, which is this game where it's just you move from game to game to game to game. And so you don't like the menu's large and you don't know what's happening. But we're all at this point so experienced. It's easy to kind of fake your way through it or, you know, not fake your way through it, but like you can kind of phone in a little bit. And I remember like Joyce, that that teaching that I had gotten to see was in my head. And I remember, I think, I, w- I think Craig was the main teacher. I think I was just starting my teaching. I was assisting her or something. And I remember this moment of, it was the moment of transformation and I locked eyes with Craig in this teacher's class. And I remember this like visceral feeling of like fear of like the fear of the not knowing in this like stupid game, right? Like the stakes are really low, but that's theater, right? Is like, you can connect to like the largest parts of the human experience. And it was like, our eyes were locked, like our lives depended on it. And then like whatever emerged, emerged between the two of us. And that I think is like a good metaphor for like, I think sometimes what gets to happen in the therapy is like, you know, like polymorph, it's like, okay, here's like 10,000 different games and the rules of the games and why you do the games in this time versus that time or whatever. And then there's just this thing that is like beyond understanding. Um, or but beyond my understanding. Well, it's like mythical, magical. It's that, it's the, well, it's the beautiful dance that happens in real connection with people, right? Yeah. And in the and in the exploration of the unknown. Well, we talk about like in therapy, you talk about the holding space. You know, like sometimes like that's what it is. It's the holding space for healing to happen. But in some ways, it's also like you want to hold space for the mystery too. You know, like you want to have room in the middle of all the things that you know. And I think it's important to keep learning and to keep trying to know more. But you also want to have, yeah, that space of like connection and intuition and the space to sit in the not knowing. I think that it's about humility too. Yeah. Like not coming in with this attitude that you know what's better for someone in their own healing journey. Yeah, and I think, definitely. and I think that's what we as a like I think that's what we as a world need more of. Just people yeah. who aren't coming to the table saying this is the answer, this is solution. I mean, that energy you're talking about, even if it's fear that comes up. I mean, that moment of eye contact, that moment of possibility, could break you into joyful laughter. It could break you into crying. It could break you into anything. It's, it's the unknown mystery of human beingness together. And it's so big that we need to hold it together. You know, and I think that's been what's so hard about this year is that people were confronted with really big, oftentimes a lot of really painful things. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And the ways that we know how to hold that together became far less accessible. And I think like, you know, I've been very privileged in a lot of ways, but certainly one in that, you know, I'm not one of the 500,000 people that like lost, a, you know, 500,000 people have died from COVID this last year, you know, and I can't imagine being in those hospital rooms or having my family in those hospital rooms. I've known people that have been in the hospital rooms, but um, they all came out. And so I think that there's also this like groundswell of grief that we're not like, I, I know that I'm a little dissociated from it at this point and I don't know what's going to happen I hope there's a space for us to be able to connect into it collectively because I also think it's too big for us to not share in holding. And it's not just COVID. I mean, it's like a million things, not even just this year, but if we just looked at this last year. Oh, and I, and I think 
but I think that we actually have, I think it's, and you and I have talked about this, but I think it's a beautiful opportunity to look around for the ways in which grief is both denied, generally speaking, in the construct of the U.S. and how we deal with just being human, but also how we collectively grieve and how we can learn how that shows up. Because I don't, I think, uh, I really do feel like if we're not grie- grieving fully, we're not living fully, because mm-hmm. it like brings us into our aliveness to acknowledge the fullness of human experience and that like to collective trauma, individual trauma, I don't know, you're a trauma therapist and I'm not, but like just the, the facts of human history and how could we not all be carrying huge weights of that epigenetic transmission Mm -hmm. of trauma in our bones. And so I remember when I was teaching, Joyce was on Joyce Pittman, who was Joyce and Bern Pittman's founded this theater that we're talking about. And um, she was on this sort of, I think, important kick, right. Of, you know, realizing, and this was certainly my experience, like, like kids would come, you know, home after class and the parents were like, what'd you do? And they'd be like, we play tag. And their like, parents would be like, why are we paying for this? And so, you know, she was really kind of pushing the teachers to articulate, you know, the principles of the games, certainly when the parents are in the room, but also with the kids, like really to try to draw that connection. So people understood, like, why are we doing this? What does this have to do with theater? And I recall one parent in particular who had a child that was very, very involved and the parent was like, you know, like, I don't think my kid is talented at this, actually. Like, why do you think that we, she should continue? And I remember, and I used to say this kind of in the classes, is that this work is really excellent for, you know, there's certainly a lot of alumni that have gone on to become, you know, well-respected actors or directors or whatever. But there's also a lot of alumni that have gone on to become journalists and teachers and, and filmmakers. And, but also that like the training is for that too. You know, the training is one that I think deepens your sense of, of connection and humanity. Yes. Cause I think it brings not only belonging, but it does playing those games mm-hmm. in ensemble it brings a sense of freedom. Cause I remember going into yeah. a County jail and seeing the women that they were working with there, just how, I mean, it was an oppress. I mean, it's, it's the jail. It's oppressive. I felt, I felt awful being in there for the, you know, just walking through those halls and I wasn't in, in I wasn't incarcerated there. Right. And yet I saw also the joy of the women who got the chance to play these games and perform them for an audience and feel human. I think you're right. It's about bringing up more human, sharing humanity, sharing what it means to be a person. And what's interesting about that, so I think that that project at Cook County was inspired by a talk that Shira Piven gave, who's Joyce and Byrne's daughter, um, about work that was being done in the prison system in LA with um, the Actors Gang, which is um, a Comedia Dollarte troupe that was started by, I believe, Tim Robbins and probably some other folks as well they're all artists. And they're like, well, if we think art is important. So they were doing this really awesome Commedia theater program in, I don't know if it was the jail or the prison. Um, and then somehow they discovered that people who were involved in this had like lower rates of recidivis- recidivism, you know, when they were um, released. And so 
somebody was like, well, we should research this, you know, and I don't know what the outcomes have been, but there's, I mean, I do know what the outcome is because they, that's why they're researching it, but they, they put a lot of money into sort of collecting data about this because they were like surprised at what they were seeing. And there's this economist who, um, I think he won like Nobel Pulitzer Prize, the economist, which one would they win? Nobel Prize probably. He won a really important prize. Um, (laughs) he did this research on sort of this like high, they like basically threw a lot of resources, this early childhood education program, like a lot of resources. And what they discovered was that, you know, many, many years down the line that the the children who had been part of that program, their life outcomes were so much better according to these measures that they were looking at, you know, like they were less likely to be on food stamps or, receive a welfare checks or be incarcerated, like all these things that cost the system and cost the taxpayers a lot of money. So basically this program paid for itself. So I think about these different things, right? Like when we treat people well, and when we uphold their dignity, like good things happen. Like it's not. Right. And But I would argue that the reason that we're not doing that on a mass scale, there's lots of reasons, but the main reason, again, I'm going to be a broken record on here is mm-hmm. Like uphold, like in order to uphold and maintain white supremacy, we have to have an SMM, we have to have an other, we have to have this hierarchy that we have and live with. And so we don't want, ultimately, even though we might want everyone to be doing better and to be on a, a better, even playing field on some ways, that's not how it is. And so many of these efforts even can look like white saviorism, right? Mm-hmm. You know, these are sort of, it doesn't, that may not be the intention of it, right? Because it never is, but it can look like coming in and saying, this is good for you, do this to communities that aren't necessarily asking for something. Come, It's like Michael's story. And that's what I was thinking about when you were talking yeah. too. Like, you know, he's part of the arts and correction world in California. And he gets to go in and teach these storytelling workshops to inmates. And I don't know yet if they're measuring, and that's the other thing, like, it's amazing they even did a study about that, because I don't even know if they're met, like, do they want to measure? Do they want, you know, we have a huge prison industrial complex that wants to keep people right. that's for profit, right? I think that may be hopefully shifting now, but it's been a thing. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. when you have profitable prisons, and you want inmates for those prisons, then it, then the, the idealism that I feel like you and I have, of like, wanting to give these tools to people that may not have access to them otherwise. Um, Because I think you also have to, we have to be real about like, who are the populations in those prisons are people of color at this point. And so that's why I'm talking about the white savers and thing, because I do think it becomes about. And and just to say, I think, but I don't remember for sure. I think that the early childhood education might've been, you know, it might've been a white community. I'm not sure. I don't want to make an assumption that it wasn't, but just to be clear about that, that I think it's also class as well and power. Well, in class and power. And that's part of the whole, I mean, that's how, you know, gosh, we could get into how like whiteness was invented. I can sense you're probably trying to wrap things up. But can I just say one more yes, thing absolutely. about what you just said? So, cause I'm going to bring it back to the, the therapy thing. Yeah. Um, I think it was Winnicott. And again, I feel really ignorant that I don't have the right names for things, but I think it was Winnicott. We talked about this idea somebody did that, um, you know, the seed of everyone's healing is, is within them. So like, that's part of that. That's really present to me whenever I'm talking to people, right. That I have whatever knowledge I have 
and my knowledge is from like institutions and trainings and you know these things that are um kind of like a very like western kind of elite blah 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 thing and also that everyone has that seed that like you also have to be sort of like listening to and respecting and so just to kind of go back to what you're saying is that that interplay between you know here's what I can bring to the table and to respect um with the people that you're engaged with are bringing to the table working towards something that is more mutual and collaborative versus like power over, which is like always a complicated, tricky thing and sort of a moving target a little bit. I think, especially as I I think that as a white female therapist, it's like, you're always kind of like navigating these power systems, but um, kind of going back to what you were talking about with like the white saviorism is how are we also respecting that any person that we encounter and any community that we're either a part of or in some ways engaged with has knowledge that is valuable and and that you know we we all we're all walking around with those seeds when we're getting an opportunity to connect with people around an experience that's different than ours like what does it mean to approach that with respect versus like tourism? Totally. Um, that's something. Or voyeurism. That, yeah. Yeah. Voyeurism. I love that tourism though. I mean, we just have to um, keep our connections alive and keep telling stories and listening to stories. Well, thank you, Sarah, for spending your Sunday evening as we're recording this. I wish I could give you a big hug. I will hopefully one day again. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me on my very first podcast. (laughs) Podcast virgin no more. (laughs) And on that note. We'll probably talk again really soon. Maybe in like five (laughs) minutes. And thank you for always being a a huge supporter in many ways and contributor to the Belonging series. And I really don't think I could have done it without you. Well, it's, it's a really special project. So it's certainly my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts and write us a review. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Belonging in the USA and on Twitter at Belonging Series. You can also learn more about our work, subscribe to our newsletter, and make a tax-deductible donation at belongingintheusa.com. USA is partially brought to you by Copeland Consulting, a nationwide provider of in-home coaching, treatment, and recovery for anything from eating disorders to addiction and everything in between. Get life-changing help in real life and in real time. Discover what it's like to be truly alive. Visit copelandconsulting.com for more information. Link in show notes.